This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, planting a half million trees. A day on the farm and Aurora's Canada Day Parade needs your help. But we begin with Vaughn's push for independence. First came the expansion of strong mayor powers, which includes the city of Vaughan. Then came a resolution presented by Vaughan's mayor, Stephen Del Duca, recommending a new governance model allowing Vaughan and all York Region cities to, quote, become single-tier municipalities. Lots to talk about with Stephen Del Duca. Welcome to the feed, Mr. Mayor. So, increased powers and the push for independence all in just over this past week. This has been a busy time for you. Well, first of all, it's great to be back with you, Anne. Thanks for having me on, as always. And yeah, for sure, it's been a very busy few days. Big news coming out of Queen's Park, and I think big news uh, coming from uh, the city of On over the last few days about our future. I'm very excited about where we are right now. Let's talk first about the strong mayor powers. What will that allow you to do as mayor of Vaughan? Well, you know, when when the provincial government passed this legislation a while ago, and now obviously they've announced that as of July 1st, uh, a bunch of new mayors, me included, will have these additional powers. Technically, the powers are quite considerable. You know, the the budget for the city would be, you know, flowing from the mayor and the mayor's office, the the opportunity to hire the city's uh, chief administrative officer or city manager and senior staff, uh, technically uh, the ability to approve bylaws relating to things that are provincial priorities, so housing, transit, and a handful of others. Uh, the mayor can, can move as long as uh, she or he has the support of one-third of council. So, and that's just, that's just a few examples. So there's quite considerable powers that it technically are now or will soon be in the domain of, of about 28, I think it is, mayors across the province. The question to me, though, is, you know, when will mayors feel the need to actually use the powers? And I've given this a fair bit of thought. I will tell you, seven months into the job, what I'm really happy to report to your audience is that Vaughn Council is working very well together. Uh, you know, we don't always share the exact same opinion, but that's a good thing. It's a healthy and dynamic discussion that we tend to have here. But I think as a group, uh, the 10 of us do understand where the city is and where we need to go. And so, look, I, my instinct tells me these are these are not necessarily especially in the case of approving bylaws powers that I would be using every day of the week. It's good to have them in order to make sure we are delivering. But at the end of the day, my my focus and my priority is to continue to work as a team. So that was a week ago Friday, uh, June the 16th, the announcement about strong mayor powers. Let's talk about what happened at council this past Tuesday night. You and council moving forward with the very first steps toward independence for the city of Vaughan. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I look at what's taken place in the last couple of months. We saw that the province moved very swiftly in Peel Region to not just talk about the potential dissolving of Peel Region as a as a level of government, but they actually introduced and passed legislation, Bill 112, the Hazel McCallion Act, to, I'll say, grant over the next couple of years, grant independent single-tier status to Mississauga, Brampton, and Caledon. And, you know, I, I will admit, I caught me off guard with how quickly they've moved. I think that's a very clear indication that they are prepared to make structural changes to some of the other regions, should the regions want them, uh, want those changes to be made. And at the end of the day, to me, it's all about, you know, eliminating the unnecessary duplication, streamlining decision-making, 
making sure that residents here in Vaughan and across York Region understand that they have one point of contact for any resident concerns, complaints, or suggestions they might have. And here in Vaughan, we, you know, we are big and we are growing and our property tax base is diversified and it's strong. Our, our, you know, what we contribute to the regional economy is considerable. Um, and what we uh, send to the region of York by way of development charges to help offset the growth that we're having, uh, you know, we rank first in each one of those categories and in some by a wide margin. So I do feel like this is the ideal moment for us to roll up our sleeves and do the homework, but I want, which is what the resolution called for, but I did want to indicate to the rest of the audience in York region and to the provincial government, we think this is the right way to go in general. Uh, we think it's the right trend, uh, again, in order to streamline the decision-making. And I'll tell you, Anne, the city staff here at the City of On do a phenomenal job in areas like public works and infrastructure and economic development and planning and legal and across the board. I think if we're in control and able to shape our own destiny as a large, growing, and sophisticated city, that's the best place for us to be. And so that's why I want us to start down this path, and I'm delighted that Council unanimously supported my resolution. Yeah, they passed a motion appealing to the Ford government to sever the city from the rest of the region. Will politics come into play when it comes to dealing with the conservative provincial government versus uh, your history? You were the leader of the provincial liberals. Will that be a barrier to getting approval for this from the Ford government? I really don't think so. I mean, I, I tell people somewhat jokingly, but I, but I do mean it seriously. I, I'm now living in my post-partisan life, and uh, you know, everyone knows my biography and the work that I've done, work that I'm proud of, and the values that I hold dear are still the values that I hold dear. But I will say, the seven months that I've been mayor, I, I have to, I have to confirm that whether it's Premier Doug Ford or many of his ministers, including the three MPPs that represent the government here in the city of Vaughan. Uh, it's been a very constructive and strong relationship. They've been, all of them, including the Premier, very accessible uh, whenever we've reached out looking for help and support with different initiatives. And I think, look, I think the people who live here in Vaughan, and frankly this is true of everybody, they don't, pe real everyday people care a lot less about partisan colors and party names and status. What they want is results. And so if moving to a single-tier model uh, and by the way, a single-tier model with also still the ability to pool resources for things like police and transit and public health, but a single-tier model gives us better value for our tax dollars, um, better service for our residents, keeping debt levels low, avoiding duplication. That's what people want to see. They want progress. They don't care about political parties. And so that's that's the frame of mind that I'm in, and I have to say it, it's been great so far to work with the provincial government. I must say, recently, uh, Markham Mayor Frank Scarpitti floated an idea that was com the complete antithesis of what you're talking about. And from my view, my perspective as a citizen, it seemed to be shot down pretty quickly by the Ford government. Does this now work in your favor? You know, I, listen, I've known Frank uh, Mayor Scarpetti for a, a long, long time. He's a great guy. He's been a phenomenal mayor for Markham, and he's someone I consider a friend and an ally and a good partner for Vaughn. And so I, I always listen closely when someone with his veteran experience speaks up about an idea. You know, I do understand uh, the, the general, of course, concept of an amalgamated city for York Region, but in my experience, and frankly, I think in the experience of the people who've lived in the GTHA for the last number of years, you know, we saw Toronto in the mid-1990s go through an amalgamation process. I think that was very divisive at the end of the day. 
and you know, 25 or so, 26, 27 years later, I'm not sure that the forced amalgamation in Toronto actually ended up, if you look at it as an experiment in governance, I don't think the forced amalgamation there ended up delivering the outcome that the people expected 25 years ago. So I think, I'll only speak for Vaughn here, I, I think a lot of people in our community, they tend to affiliate themselves with their local community. Um, in fact, if I'm walking down the street in Vaughan, most people have never heard of York Region. They don't understand what the difference is between the two levels of government. Again, as I said earlier, they just want positive results delivered for them and their family. So uh, I respect Frank a lot. I think it's important to listen to a good uh, veteran colleague. But I agree with you, Queen's Park shot it down pretty quickly. And so uh, we've got to look for other options. And that's what my resolution was all about. When you were elected mayor of Vaughan, you became mayor for the next four years. You also had this amazing contest recently, mayor for a day. You've got a winner. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, we, we did. We had a great, so we had, first of all, we had more than 30 applications that came in across the city. And then, you know, some people have said to me, well, that doesn't seem like a lot, but this is the very first time we've done it. And we did, you know, we did reach out to the public and, and Catholic schools, uh, publicly funded schools across the city. We let everybody know we were doing it. You had to be in grades uh, five through eight to apply. I actually think for our first time out, getting more than 30 applications is really great. We had three members making a decision on which was the best application. Uh, it was the city manager, deputy city clerk, and our um, deputy city manager for legal services. They reviewed each one of the applications, and we did have a winner. And just a few days ago, uh, Allegra Spaniolo was a grade 8 student from Our Lady of Fatima Catholic Elementary School in Woodbridge, Ward 2, was the mayor for a day. So Allegra got to spend the entire day with me and members of council and my staff. Uh, she came to a committee of the whole meeting, a, a council meeting. She got to wear the chain of office, like the real chain of office uh, for a good chunk of the afternoon. She got to tour the library uh, system we have. So she had a great day. I hope she had a great day. And she's someone who's off to St. Elizabeth High School next fall. She's got an exciting future ahead of her, and I'm really thrilled. And, and I'm looking forward to this becoming an annual occurrence and growing in terms of excitement and, and interest in years to come. Here, here. <laughs> Let's move on to infrastructure here in Vaughan. The Kirby Road Extension Project, it's currently in uh, the sort of pre-construction phase. Next week, on the 27th of June, you're holding a big media event to talk about it, to explain it. Why is this Kirby Road Extension so important? Well, when I ran for mayor last year, transportation and, and solutions for our traffic gridlock were my top priority. And then at my Chamber of Commerce luncheon a couple of months ago, I unveiled a 10-year plan, nine points in my 10-year plan to keep on moving and fight that gridlock. And building the Kirby extension is one of my nine points. And I, I tell people everywhere that Vaughn is probably the largest city in Ontario that has a number of east, major east-west arterial routes that are, are kind of broken in half. They don't go all the way through. And Kirby is one of them. So is Texton, so is Langstaff. And so I committed last year during the campaign and again in my chamber speech to get these projects underway to connect or extend these roads. So that will take the pressure off of a major Mackenzie and a Rutherford and a Highway 7 in order to make sure that both our residents and, uh, and, our, and our goods, you know, for the sake of our economy, can continue to move properly and efficiently across the city east-west. So, yeah, we're going to be doing an event next week. We're going to be kicking off the idea that Kirby will be extended between Dufferin and Bathurst. 
That's an exciting project. I know formal construction will begin a little bit later this year, and I believe that road will be open to traffic in 2026. So I'm personally thrilled. It's the first evidence, the first tangible evidence of my nine-point plan becoming real. And so it's a good achievement for the city, and I'm looking forward to getting it kickstarted. I have a very personal question for you. Where will you be on July 1st when Vaughn celebrates Canada Day? <laughs> I'm going to be all over the city. There's a at least three events that I know of right now, but the big one, the big official City of Vaughn celebration will be at Boyd Park on Islington in Woodbridge. It's going to be an exciting day. My family's coming, trying to get my extended family to come. Hopefully the weather is going to be great. Uh, it's going to, we have the Sam Roberts band that are going to be headlining that day. It's a great location and uh, it starts at 11 o'clock in the morning, runs to eight o'clock at night. Tons of things for all ages to do. Uh, I think it's going to be a great day for the city of Vaughn to celebrate what is, no doubt, the best country in the world. Absolutely. I certainly agree with you on that. So may I officially say Happy Canada Day. We look forward to it on <laughs> July 1st. But I also want to say, on behalf of all of us here at 105.9 The Region, Happy Birthday to you, July the 7th. <laughs> now, you're not going to be as old as, as Canada. I think Canada is 156 years old. You are much, much younger than that. But you're stepping into a new decade, and we wish you all the best on July the 7th, Mayor oh, Stephen Del Duca. <laughs> I appreciate that, Anne. Thank you very, very much. Very kind of you. Next, retirement, ready or not, that story is coming up. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. According to a recently released Hoop Abacus data survey, 44% of non-retired Canadians aged 55 to 64 have less than $5,000 in savings, one in five from this group admitting they've not put anything aside for retirement. The number of seniors in Canada is growing as the population of our great nation hit 40 million on June 16th, with the 65-plus crowd accounting for 20%. And this annual retirement-ready survey paints a pretty dismal financial picture for those poised to leave the workforce and sail off into the sunset. Ivana Zarnado is head of plan services with Healthcare of Ontario Pension Plan, and she joins us now on the feed. Welcome to the show, Ivana. Great to have you with us. Thank you. So happy to be here. So this retirement survey is an annual survey. What's different about this year? What stood out for you in terms of the survey results? Well, with the prolonged period of rising inflation and interest rates, we know that Canadians at all ages are finding it much harder to save for retirement. But the research demonstrated that the picture is really bleak uh, for the older age group that really should be looking forward to retirement and getting excited about entering this next phase in their life. Um, we know that workers in this, uh, the age group of 55 to 64, that uh, just under half have less, less than $5,000 in savings and that one in five have not set aside anything for retirement. Um, so then more than half of them have said that if inflation continues to rise, the only choice that they will have is that they'll need to push out their target retirement date, which is really unfortunate. You know, when you've worked your entire career and you're looking forward to retirement and you now find yourself in this situation. 
So let's analyze some of those stats that you just talked about. First of all, less than $5,000 in savings. Are we talking about what's in the bank? Are we talking about RRSPs? Are we talking about, do we at any point include houses and, and equity in, in, what, in home ownership? The, the question that was asked in the survey was really a general question of, about, you know, what they have in savings. So we don't have necessarily the detail um, that you've have, uh, asked uh, in your question, um, but it really does signal that it's hard for Canadians to save on their own. Um, we've always said that, you know, to prepare for retirement, save early and save often. Um, but that's easier said than done. Um, it's really hard if you're trying to do that on your own. Um, I have three grown children, uh, grown boys who are now in the workforce, and I've been saying to them for many years, you know, save what you can. And with the rising inflation and interest rates, you know, they kind of look at me like, you know, there's nothing left at the end of it. You know, I get my paycheck, I pay my rent, you know, I pay my phone bill, um, and there's not much left to save. So we know how difficult it is uh, to save, um, and Canadians have continue to tell us that, you know, they know the solution to this is access to workplace retirement savings plans. The other thing is pushing your retirement date as far down the line as possible. It's almost like moving the goal line. So let's go back to having nothing in savings or just $5,000, the 55 to 64 poised to retire, hoping to retire. How can they live on $5,000 if that's all they have in their savings accounts? And that's what's challenging. That's that's why we're seeing that this group of Canadians are saying that they have to keep working, that they're not able to retire because they know that they can't live on that. Um, you know, with the younger Canadians, uh, we we know that having access to workplace savings plans, if we can, you know, continue to see that employers offering those plans, that we don't then find our younger Canadians in that same situation, you know, when they get to that age. In the general population, in your survey, one in three Canadians is falling behind when it comes to their standard of living, with 38% of pre-retirement adults, that's the old 55 to 64-year-olds, saying that they're kind of out of step with their standard of living. So what does that mean? Are they trying to figure out how to live well, but also how to retire well at the same time? Yes, they're, they, they are concerned about their ability to retire. Um, because they know, they've been saying for every, every year that we've done the survey, we've seen a, a consistent trend that uh, Canadians know that there is a retirement crisis looming. Um, we see it every year. Um, they know that that's not sufficient for them to live on. And at that stage of their life, they don't have a lot of options left, um, so they are continuing to work. What about OAS and CPP? This is something that is given to uh, to Canadians at a certain age. I believe it's 65 to start earning OAS, and you can access your CPP at an earlier age. But does that factor into one's ability to retire comfortably? Yeah, so the government programs are great. Um, and as you mentioned, they're available to Canadians, uh, but they're not enough. Um, if you have friends or family who uh, are collecting those, you can see that it's, it's not enough uh, to live on. So as good as they are, um, there is a need for Canadians to have access to other retirement programs so that they can continue their standard of living. 
Um, and what we've heard time and time again is that Canadians uh, recognize that access to workplace retirement savings plans is really the most effective way to make sure that they have those savings in time for their retirement. But if you're talking about 55 or 55 to 64, it might be a little bit late, to, to, or is it ever too late to join in a company's pension plan? I would say it's never too late, um, never too late to join. But of course, they don't have the time horizon that a younger uh, a younger Canadian would have, you know, a 30-year-old who's going to be working for much longer. So absolutely, if you are able to, uh, if your employer is offering uh, a savings plan, a retirement savings plan, join the plan. Um, however, they don't have the same opportunity that a younger Canadian has to build up that uh, that retirement. And the biggest problem for anybody right now with inflation and high interest rates is finding any excess money to put aside for anything anywhere, whether it's a pension plan with your company, whether it's an RRSP. It's just tough to find any extra cash. Exactly. You know, our our research last year, you know, told us that younger Canadians um, are still really the worst off, uh, that things remain very challenging for them. You know, more than half of them are living beyond their means and not by choice. Um, and that group is really most concerned with, you know, their income keeping up with inflation, uh, whether they're able to afford a house, um, and most importantly, their ability to save for retirement. Let's talk about owning a home. And if you were lucky enough to get in, well, the the getting was good. <laughs> it's a little tough to get into the yeah. market now. But of the 66% of pre-retirement adults who own a home, this is according to your survey, 34% are relying on the sale of their home to fund their retirement. Yes, and that, so that was an option that, um, you know, was available to, you know, perhaps the older group of Canadians uh, that, you know, if they have a home, they use that to help fund their retirement. Um, that option is going away, though, for our younger adults. Um, those in that, you know, 18 to 35 age group don't have access to housing. It's just not affordable in the same way that it was in the past. And that's not really an option for them. So it becomes even more important uh, to have access to retirement programs, you know, through their employer. So this is something I found very interesting in your survey. 52%, and this is, we're talking about the 66% of pre-retirement adults who own a home. So 52% are worried about the impact that rising interest rates will have on a purchaser's ability to buy the owner's home to help fund the retirement. I, I mean, it's a, a lot of connecting the dots, but I understand that. Exactly, exactly. So if you were relying on your home as something that you were going to use to fund your retirement, if you're not able to sell that home because others can't afford it, then that also impacts your ability uh, to save for retirement or to have access to retirement savings. So you said in the, the very early stages of this interview that it's what's going on for soon-to-be-retired Canadians, it's a pretty bleak picture. What's the bottom line, Ivana? What can we take away from this discussion and from this year's survey? Um, I think what we can take away is that we've consistently heard from Canadians that they are concerned uh, with this impending uh, retirement crisis and that the consistent majority have told us that they're willing to do their part uh, to get access to a workplace retirement savings plans, that they are willing to take less pay for a pension, hmm. 
And what was really interesting is that this figure held, even uh, in this latest research, in a year that, you know, we know Canadians are struggling more than ever with meeting their day-to-day expenses, that they're still willing to take less pay and hoping that their employer also can uh, match or contribute some form to a workplace uh, savings plan. Hmm. Ivana Zanardo, Head of Plan Services with Healthcare of Ontario Pension Plan, thank you so much for helping us understand this most recent survey, and hopefully the future looks a little brighter thanks to your advice. Thank you. Next on the feed, celebrating pride and resilience, Jim Lang with that story. As Pride Month is coming to a close, there are so many great people across this country doing great work for the LGBTQ community. And one of the great things about it, one of the great organizations is the LGBT Purge Fund. And their executive director is a very inspiring person, someone doing great work every day to help everyone across this country. She is Michelle Douglas and joins us this morning on the feed. Michelle, how are you? Hi, great to connect, Jim. I'm really well. It's always a busy month and uh, yeah, excited to continue the work. I mean, you were the Grand Marshal, co-Grand Marshal of the Pride Parade in 2000. You won the Queen Elizabeth Diamond Jubilee Medal in 2012. Um, Your work is well documented, but I mean, it it continues. Here we are in 2023, and I know we just had the York Region Pride Parade. I was thrilled to be part of it, but it seems to me like there's still a ways to go from your work personally and with the Purge Fund. Do you feel the same thing? I absolutely do. Uh, You know, I've been working at this kind of pursuing equality rights uh, by using the courts and all kinds of just, you know, telling our stories for more than 30 years. So I've seen a big change, but I also know right now it's kind of not the time to to be complacent or to just kind of rest uh, for a time because as we all see, there's a lot going on that makes, you know, people in the LGBTQ uh, community quite vulnerable right now. So yeah, lots still to be done. Um, but Pride's also a time to best I think, anyway, reflect on what we've achieved, which has been a lot, and, uh, you know, think about, uh, you know, how we how we kind of refuel and keep going. I look at what you're doing with the Purge Fund, and just maybe explain to the listeners, the LGBT Purge Fund, how important it is to us as Canadians and what it does to help people. Thanks so much uh, for, for raising it. It's The LGBT Purge Fund was started as a result of a large class action lawsuit that was uh, represented uh, a representative of people who had served in the federal government. So here, think about RCMP, military people, as I was once myself, and federal public servants who were so badly treated by policy in the government between the, say, 1950s and 1990s, um, when so many of us were fired, as I was by the uh, Canadian Armed Forces. And so this group finally got established as a result of a lawsuit. And now we are focused on reconciliation. So doing lots of cool things, including building the world's first national scale uh, monument to the 2S or two-spirit LGBT community in, uh, and it's going to be built in Ottawa. So lots of big work going on. And I think it's a way to uh, remind folks in Canada that, you know, the Canadian government didn't always treat uh, many of its citizens very well. And uh, so we're reflecting on the past, 
But I think also, you know, definitely looking up about things we've achieved and that will still be there uh, to help those who need a hand going forward. Considering your uh, not so great experiences in the armed forces in the 80s, what goes through your mind when you see openly gay members of the armed forces being greeted by their partners when they come back from duty or come off a cruise in the Navy or come back from a deployment? This is so heartwarming for me. I just am, I'm really proud of uh, the things we've achieved through really hard work, of course. But, you know, it makes me feel really good that people can be themselves, serve their country, which was so important to me, and, uh, you know, live their lives and contribute. So it's, it's a great sign when those kinds of things happen. And frankly, when I see, like, you know, flag raising happening on military bases, I'm like, great. This is the kind of hope that we had that people can be seen, acknowledged, and then carry on with the very important work that's in, uh, you know, in front of them. So that's, that's the hope. And, and now we're largely seeing it. So things have really uh, progressed well. Honestly, just seeing those uh, scenes sometimes just, it just really warms my heart. Michelle, I'm, I have to admit, um, in the 80s, I did and said a lot of stupid things that I'm, I'm not proud of. I just, I, I was ignorant. I didn't know any better. But over time, through life and through my family, through my kids, I've, I've liked to think I've educated myself and changed my way of thinking. Is that part of the process of what the Purge Fund and what you and your staff do is, is continue to educate people to maybe change their way of thinking? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, it's it's a journey for many of us, right? I think Canada is doing lots of like learning about, you know, what's happened in the past that maybe we didn't know or didn't learn about it, didn't fully appreciate. So that's part of the work of the LGBT Purge Fund, um, educating people, because I think once more people know about the level of discrimination that mm. happened to LGBT folks, you know, myself, as a serving member of the military, you know, being fired just because I happen to be gay. Um, you know, these things don't, don't sit well with, I think, the average person. So telling the stories of the past makes it a little easier for us to understand why we've pushed and, um, you know, to seek the equality that we, we now have largely today. So, yeah, I, you know, it, it's a journey for people, of course. And frankly, my form of activism is to say, you know, I'd rather meet you along the way and help explain some of this stuff rather than condemn you for, you know, mistakes of the past. Let's work together. I think that's a way to um, really see uh, see bigger changes. And it's always been my approach. Even my own family, they have just come along. They're so loving and so supportive and now kind of would go to a pride parade because they're, you know, they want to learn more as well. Speaking with Michelle Douglas, the uh, dynamic executive director of the LGBT Purge Fund and doing great work for the pride community across this country. Um, you had mentioned other government departments and we associate you with the military and problems with uh, being out and gay in the military. But you also alluded to the fact that other, other levels of government and civil servants in the country face the same kind of discrimination. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So here, as an example, you know, people who may have been like a gay or lesbian diplomat, and uh, they were often targeted by the uh, Foreign Service of Canada back in the day and lost their jobs. Same with RCMP members. I can think of uh, friends of mine who were serving as RCMP members and literally fired simply because they happen to be gay. Um, so, you know, this happened, and the number may shock people, but it was more than 9,000 Canadians in the federal work environment that were subjected to these policies. And we now call that time period the LGBT purge, right? Purging of people out for no other reason than our sexual orientation or how we identify. 
So, you know, that's the kind of Canada that's frankly in the past. We're looking to the future um, and also, of course, being quite vigilant right now because I think we can see before us the kind of um, online hate, the, the physical uh, violence that is being meted out against some, for example, in the uh, transgender community. And this just can't stand. So, you know, I, I re- you know, continue to be an activist to make sure that those who are most vulnerable have great allies and they can count on me. It's, uh, you know, you're talking about this, Michelle. Now I think about openly gay athletes, entertainers, singers, politicians, and I don't even think twice about it. And it's just like, okay, well, I guess that's that's their life. That's why, that's, you know, right. that's who they are. That doesn't mean, yeah. you know, and so I, I think as Canadians, you either can do the job or you can't do the job, no matter who you are. Well, I think that's always kind of been the aim is to be able to be, you know, who you are and then get on with it. Um, there's a real liberation in that. I, I, I remember, you know, when I was serving as an officer in the military, I was in the military police of all places, and, uh, and you know, I worked so hard to hide. Um, and, and still, I gave my very best in service to, to this great country. Um, and to be fired on that basis, you know, really shook me as a young person. Um, but then I was pretty committed, I think, to just you know, trying to change things. I, I actually brought a lawsuit back in the day in 1992 that formally ended that policy. So ending discrimination by policy and ending discrimination are two different things. Mm. But, you know, I've been pretty consistently at it with a whole bunch of other people and movement as well. So, um, you know, things have changed over those 30 plus years and uh, we're going in the right direction. We just don't want to see a rollback of the laws and protections that are there for us now. Um, nobody wants to go through those, those hard times again. Um, I sure don't. So, you know, vigilance now is what I think it's really going to take to, to make sure that, you know, the gains hard fought four and one, um, don't slip back. I would assume that you receive feedback from some of these victims of the purge, as you mentioned, uh, who reach out to you and say, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for what you continue to do. Uh, they do actually. It's, it's really warming, uh, you know, heartwarming for me and, and a little bit of, you know, fuel for ongoing work that I'm doing. Um, but I also see the effects of, like, it's quite traumatic, some of the, you know, interrogations and shaming and firing that, that had happened. And, and there's something to be contended with in the past. You know, it's got to be healing. So, uh, you know, that's why things like the Prime Minister's apology in 2017 was a big deal. I know people say, you know, Canada apologizes for too much. We're apologizing for everything. Well, actually, if you deserve it um, and you've earned an apology, sometimes it's exactly the right thing to do. Um, So, you know, I hear from those people. And now I think we're all just trying to educate um, other Canadians about what happened before to make things a little bit better today. Yeah, you know, I have two kids in university and they they educate me all the time. Uh, Pronouns. (laughs) Uh, how their their right. friends, their identities, and how they live, and it's it's a it's a constant education for me as a parent and someone in my age group. But I'm trying, like I'm trying my best. You know what? That to me, like, really is is a huge kind of um, uh, place to be. I think when you say I am actually hearing it, learning about it, and trying my best. No one's uh, for me anyway. At least as an activist, I'm not expecting perfection. I think you know, trying to understand, learn more about it. And maybe see people's humanity. What an incredible place to be, actually. And I think if more folks could 
take that um, perspective, I think we'd all be a lot better off. You might know, not know a lot about it, but learning and trying your best. I'm all about it. I also try my best too, because you know what? I might even have a few years on you, Jim. And, uh, <laughs> no, I'm older than you. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm also doing my best. And, you know, movements change, language change. But you know what? We can keep up with that and uh, continue to do our best. Michelle, I, I can't even begin to tell you how much I enjoyed this. And uh, I just thank you so much. Thank you for what you do as a Canadian, um, you know, retired okay. officer in the military and what you're doing as executive director of the LGBT Purge Fund. It's just amazing. And it's people like you that make this a great country. Thank you, Michelle. My pleasure. Great to speak with you. After the break, going green, farm fun and planning a parade. These stories are still to come on the feed. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. The Greenbelt Foundation is working to increase rural and urban forests. Kevin Frankish now with the planting of half a million trees. We see the signs on the highway now entering Ontario's Greenbelt. It's the largest of its kind in the world, a significant amount of it right here in York Region. But we also hear how easily this literal investment in our future could be bulldozed, as the Ford government seems to be trying to do. This week, the Greenbelt Foundation in Forests, Ontario, celebrated the planting of half a million trees in the Greenbelt. CEO of the Greenbelt Foundation, Edward McDonald, joins me now to talk about this milestone, but also about the ongoing task of protecting this important part of the province. Hi, Edward. Good afternoon, Kevin. How I are can, you today? I am well. Congratulations on half a million trees. I, I don't know if Hallmark makes a card for that. <laughs> uh, I, if not, maybe they should, but yeah. we're certainly very excited about it. It's been a long time in the making, and it was great to get to that point. Can you put into perspective what half a million trees means? Sure. Um, part of it, if you step back, um, we've done a lot of work just looking at tree cover and the larger health of natural systems uh, in southern Ontario and in the Greenbelt region. And so what we're really trying to get to, uh, and most people have a target of about 30% um, tree cover. But, you know, half a million is a, is a great step along a, a bigger journey. What did it take to get to this point? Sure. Um, well, first of all, I mean, despite, um, well, I'd just say, we, you know, we, we, we continue to get support from the province of Ontario. So in part, it, it allows us to do these kinds of investments. So that's, that's part one. Part two is really strong partnerships with organizations like Forest Ontario, conservation uh, authorities and conservation groups, as well as you know, a whole range of private and public landowners, which is where these trees are being planted. So it starts with those partnerships. It starts with a vision about what we're trying to achieve. Um, and then a lot of hard work on the ground. And um, it's been really impressive to see how that's gone. You know, a lot of us were under the impression this is protected land, period, stamped at no erasing, nothing's going to happen to it. But then we hear the, the, the plans to perhaps build on part of it, something that, thank goodness, many people are objecting to. How fragile are these lands and, and how fragile is the effort to try and, and keep these lands as they are? Um, yeah, so I think it's a good question. It's a complicated question. I think 
you know, as you said, there's a, a high degree of public support for what the Green Belt provides, and which is uh, helps clean our air, um, helps clean our water, protect our water systems. It provides immense access to natural spaces and um, a huge um, part of our local food system. Um, things people love, including all the Niagara tender fruit. So we we know there's a lot of public support and frankly a lot of um, more general support. So that's the green, that's the strength of the green belt, and that's that's sort of where we're focused and focused on how to get the most out of the green belt for Ontario. The the Oak Ridge's moraine, which is a very integral part of the green belt, is is very significant too, just simply because it's one of the highest points in Ontario, and from there water flows. Um, and, and so what happens in the green belt doesn't always stay in the green belt, does it? No, it's a great point. Um, so yes, Oak Ridge Moraine, which, you know, includes a, you know, covers a significant portion of New York region, um, is actually connected to both Lake Simcoe watershed to the north and the Lake Ontario watershed to the south. And to your point, um, it's protecting the groundwater, part one. So there's still a lot of people, including New York region, who rely on groundwater. Uh, as opposed to lake water, um, both for residential purposes, agricultural purposes. So it's protecting that water system from that perspective. It's also a really key part because it's many of the headwaters of the rivers and um, creeks and other things that flow into Lake Ontario and through our major urban areas originate in, in the Oak Ridge Moraine. So what happens on the Oak Ridge Moraine, as you say, um, impacts what comes downstream into areas where millions of people in Ontario live. What can people who live in the area, so let's talk Richmond Hill, uh, you know, which includes Oak Ridges, let's talk Aurora uh, and, and these areas, um, what can they do to help? Yeah, I think it's what we've seen is, you know, continue to have conversations. We obviously are growing as a province. We have choices to make about how we grow. And I think it's the, you know, community conversations um, are really important to that. So, you know, whether you're in York region or elsewhere, I think we're, you know, continue to want people to sort of, um, you know, get engaged and talk about why they, why these things matter. Cause there are choices to be made and, um, you know, public input, community input, those are obviously critically important to those choices. We, we might be surprised to learn more about the green belt because really, like I said, I think a lot of uh, the only exposure some people have to it who don't live in the area or who don't hike in the area, et cetera, uh, are the signs on the highway saying now entering Ontario's green belt. As we're looking at those signs, give me some ideas of what we should be thinking. Where should our mind go when we see those signs? Yeah, fantastic question. Because as you say, I mean, you know, partially, I think people look at the green belt and they see different things. For some people, it's the incredible farmland and the local food it provides. Um, for others, it's natural spaces and areas that they love and maybe go hiking in or biking in um, those green spaces that the green belt contains. Um, we've already talked about water, um, and you know, there's uh, lots of other benefits like that that um, you know people can be thinking about. But people love different aspects of it. So it's tourism, recreation, it's the green spaces and natural systems, it's the local food and agriculture, and it's the water. Um, but we also, you know, we also think about the rural economy. There's a lot of people, including in York region, who are working in agriculture, tourism, forestry, and a lot of things that the Greenbelt Protection provides. Uh, overall, you know, our, our, set, our analysis shows about 177,000 jobs in Ontario are dependent on the Greenbelt. And it contributes about $9.7 billion to the Ontario economy. So, 
you, you know, depending on what you care about and things, you know, uh, different, you know, uh, ways to think about it. Those are, those are some of the elements. All right. Well, I know the protection goes on. I know the tree planting goes on, but congratulations on half a million trees. Thank you very much, Kevin. I really appreciate your uh, interest in this and ability to ch- chat with you a bit today about it. I encourage you to check out greenbelt.ca. Learn all about this incredible piece of uh, Ontario. CEO of Greenbelt Foundation, Edward McDonald, has been speaking with me. From the forest to the farm, Shaliza Bacchus takes us to Clearwater. It's officially summertime, and there are so many fun ways to enjoy the weather around the region. And one of the best ways to enjoy a Saturday in the summer is heading up to Clearwater Farm in Georgina. Joining me to tell us all about the happenings at the farm is communications coordinator Jennifer Gidge. Welcome to the feed. Hi, awesome. Thank you so much for having me. We are so happy to have you on. So first of all, in case our listeners aren't familiar with Clearwater Farm, we at the region, we love it up there. We've been up there a number of times, but (laughs) why don't you tell us the story behind the farm? Yeah, of course. So essentially what we are, I'll start that and I'll go out in a bit of a history, is that we're an educational farm. And that phrase sort of means two things. Essentially, we help young people who are interested in learning how to farm by providing them access to land, equipment, training, field trips, really a whole curriculum um, about farming. So we teach them, we get them to grow in this sort of industry because it's so hard for young people who want to get into farming to get into it without having that access to generational land, etc. So we have our agripreneur program that provides that teaching around all around regenerative agriculture practices. So practices which are good for the land and really for the future of our planet and our food systems. And so that's the first way. The second way is through helping kids learn and grow on our farm. And that's where our Saturdays come in. Previous to that, we do a lot of, we've done a lot of summer camps, school trips, really anything that helps kids learn about nature, um, grow their curiosity about nature, and just see how their food grows. Amazing. And all right, you mentioned the Saturdays at Clearwater Farm. They look like so much fun. What are all the fun elements to a Saturday at Clearwater Farm? Yeah, so essentially we have this fun happening every Saturday until Thanksgiving weekend, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. We have a ton of family fun offerings. One of the big ones is our art program, essentially called Art in the Field, where you get to come together as a family and do art in nature with the assistance of some local artists. We have a full schedule on our site. Some of the different, you know, art fun includes, you know, a clay program. We have painting fun. We have fun with fiber arts like yarn in that. And then we even have, for Canada Day, have sort of your own printworking workshop where kids and families can bring their T-shirts, hats, and can have a ton of fun designing their own T-shirts for Canada Day with their sort of the printmaking expertise of these local artists. And that's all done, you know, in nature, in the beautiful outdoors, where kids can be inspired by the nature that's around them. And together as a family, they can create a piece of art they get to take home. That sounds like so much fun. And I want to touch on that, being outside, you know, kids are exposed to a lot of different things than compared to, let's say, 10 years ago. You know, the rise of social media, technology, video games, all of these things that keeps them glued to screens. Why do you think it's so important for kids to be out in nature? Well, you know, kids, they are our future. We're currently raising, you know, as a community, 
parents, everybody, we're raising the next sort of generation, right? And so it's important that we help them develop a love for nature, a love for the outdoors, make sure that they are curious about nature, because, yeah, they are really going to be our future makers surrounding that. And it's just important, as you mentioned, like on a day-to-day basis, you know, inspire them to get away from the screens, inspire them to just enjoy the natural world and explore it and get their curiosity going. And, you know, on our Saturdays as well, we uh, have self-guided tours so families can come around the farm, look in our greenhouses, see where their food's grown. And we have various signs around our farm that teach about not only the history of our property, but also the different uh, educational elements of the farm that uh, help kids learn about, you know, the nature that's around them. That's amazing. And, you know, it's right here in York Region. It's not a far drive for, you know, a lot of people closer to the city. It's easily accessible. You're right there by Lake Simcoe. It's lovely. And are there any other activities for the adults to enjoy? Uh, Yes, for sure. Well, during our Saturdays as well, not only, of course, there's the art program for the kids, but it's really fun for the whole family because we have other, along with our farm stand where you can pick up farm fresh food, we have other local vendors joining us which sell a variety of products each week. The vendors, you know, more or less change every week. So if you come one week during the summer and then come a different week, you're bound to get something different. We have yoga programming for adults and kids. We have a HIIT yoga, which is high-intensity interval training. And then we just have your regular sort of classic yoga with some wonderful local instructors. And then we have a NIA movement and music, which is a very nice sort of just, you know, feel your body in nature, get going to the music and just really have a mental wellness experience. And then we also do some teen slash tween yoga as well. That all sounds amazing. I feel like there's nothing quite like doing yoga in a setting like Clearwater Farm. It's just beautiful. I personally have experienced it. It's amazing. Definitely recommend. Yeah, it's uh, it's just, as we mentioned, the, you know, kids connecting with nature. We want adults to connect with nature too, you know, as you're going about your, your work week in that. It's just so nice to come to the weekend in the morning to just connect back with yourself, with the your surroundings, just feel that sense of grounding again. You know, being uh, near uh, what's nearby, the beaches and all that. And uh, we, we talk about that a lot because, you know, as we have this wonderful nature on the farm, we're also just a couple minute drive or even walk from De La Salle Beach, which, which is our main beach in Georgina. So it's just a wonderful day trip experience. And speaking of planning a day trip, what would you think would be an ideal day if a family was planning to make the drive up to Georgina and they want to make the most out of all the activities? Well, I mean, we'd love for them to start off here at Clearwater Farm and, you know, start your day off with some of that yoga, you know, just feel that sense of calm and groundness at the beginning of the day. And then, you know, exploring the farm, getting out in nature, supporting our local vendors, picking up some farm fresh food at the farm stand. And what we notice is that a lot of families who come and visit us, some of them will eat that farm fresh food on the farm or they'll take it as part of their picnic to go to the beaches a couple minutes away, as I mentioned. So it's really just, you know, spending the time you'd like to here with us at the farm, exploring it, taking in all our offerings, the art program and that. And then we recommend always heading up to the beach after. And then, you know, we have some wonderful local restaurants in the area as well, which provide a great opportunity for some wonderful eats for dinner. Yes, I love that so much. That's exactly what we want to hear. And as I mentioned, it's right here in York Region, super accessible, super easy to get to, and a great way to spend a Saturday in the summer. Now, Jennifer, if our listeners want some more information about Clearwater Farm, where can they go? 
they just visit our website, www.clearwaterfarm.ca, and at the top you'll see a, a little sort of visit bar, and under that is Saturdays at Clearwater Farm to catch a full schedule. Um, I will mention we got a couple special events coming up. We are open on Canada Day with that printmaking art workshop. It's going to be a lot of fun. And then the next few weeks in July, we also have outdoor story time for the kids as well. Sounds like so much fun. You definitely want to head up to Clearwater Farm on a Saturday this summer. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Next weekend, Canadians from coast to coast to coast will be celebrating Canada's 156th anniversary. Parades and parties are being planned. As Glenn Perkins tells us, one community locally is looking for volunteers to help get the party started. Aurora is Canada's birthday town and plans have been well in the works to put out all the stops for Canada Day celebrations. Shani Ware is the town's special events supervisor. Shani, with just one week to go, what preparations are you making? There are several things underway as our celebrations take place over two days starting on June 30th and carry straight through to July 1st. We are, after all, Canada's birthday town, and because of that, we have to make sure that we celebrate in style. We will be starting off on June 30th with our annual Dance in the Park taking place at the Aurora Town Park featuring back-to-back live entertainment and then bright and early Canada Day morning. We'll be starting off with our annual Canada Day Parade, um, which will include the community. I'll have a huge multicultural showcase as well. We're fortunate to have the actual Governor General's Horse Guards, which will be in attendance and participating. And then the festivities carry on straight through to Lambert Wilson Park, which will be there for the duration of the afternoon, straight through into the evening with a finale of the fireworks. Throughout the afternoon, families can expect to tour Canada from one interactive and educational activity to another reflective of each province and territory. So it's quite a robust plan that we have in place. And we know that the residents, the community of Aurora, they really enjoy getting into the Canada Day festivities. Aurora is full of small town charm with huge celebratory hearts. So yes, the community really does rally around this national celebration. And of course, we are the ones that created Canada Day because prior to that, um, it was known as Dominion Day across the country. But Aurora felt that a birthday party was due and a birthday party is what they started. And these birthday parties, they don't happen by themselves. Uh, It takes a lot of people to make this event happen. Absolutely. And we're fortunate to have countless community organizations that have stepped forward and taken on not just a role, but very active roles, such as the Aurora Farmers Market, the Aurora Legion, the Rotary Club of Aurora, the Optimist Club of Aurora. The list really goes from there and is endless. And if anyone would like to participate, if they would like to become involved, can they do that? Yes, by all means, they should reach out to the special events line at 905 726-4762 or reach out to any team representative um, with the town of Aurora as it's an all-hands-on-deck affair. Shelley Ware, Special Event Supervisor for the town of Aurora. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much. That special event number again is 905-726-4762. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. If you missed any part of The Feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.